0: This morning we, uh, we forge ahead in our study of Proverbs, we're, you know what, actually we're coming pretty close to the end of it. Believe it or not, we're about 10 weeks into uh, to our study, and this week will be followed by two more sermons in Proverbs before we move on to the next book in the wisdom literature. Job is up next, if you guys want to go ahead and start reading ahead, it's a long one, and we're going to do it all in five sermons. So get on your horse, you've got a lot of homework to do. Uh, in the meantime, for the next three weeks in Proverbs, I want to give you a sense of what to expect. So this morning, I'm going to be talking about contentment from Proverbs. Next week, Bill Heerman, an elder here at Trinity, is going to be talking to you guys about sovereignty. How to live wisely in light of God's sovereignty, which is a major theme through Proverbs. And then Drew Raines, the last week of this month, will be preaching to us on the family. Another one of Proverbs' favorite subjects uh, so that's what you've got to look forward to. We're going to dive into the subject of contentment this morning, which is to say we're going to be taking a little bit of a different tack on Proverbs. Uh, maybe you've noticed this if you've been part of the series for the last few weeks. Maybe you've noticed that that since we moved from the early chapters of Proverbs into topical studies where we pull a thread of what Proverbs has to say about money or about relationships, friendships, or, or uh, any number of the other things that we've talked about, we've been pulling threads on these topics. One of the things we've been mostly focused on is is our actions, what we do. We've talked about what wisdom looks like in what we do with our time, what we do with our bodies, what we do with our resources, with our words, with our friendships. We've talked about wisdom in action. And today, we shift a little bit to think about wisdom and where it shows up and how we feel and how we think and our outlook. Think of it, As a shift from action to attitude. We want to look at. Unpack together the outlook on life. That's produced by wisdom. And a person who fears the Lord. And that is to say. We're talking about contentment this morning. In other words. We're talking about a struggle for all of us. I don't know anybody who doesn't struggle with contentment. I'm guilty. I do. And I I genuinely don't know anyone. For whom this is not a hard thing. We. We. We struggle with contentment for different reasons at different times in our lives. For some of you, you're young, you're on the front end of a lot of life's major transitions. Tempting for you, where you are, to put a lot of stock in what life will be like when I get married, when I finish school, when I finally get that job. You put a lot of stock on these things that haven't happened to you yet and think that'll be the key to my contentment. Others of you out there have have crossed that line, and now you're on the downslope. okay? Not to make you feel like you're over the hill, but you've gotten the things you thought were going to make you happy. Now you're living with them, and now you're facing the rest of your life where things are kind of constant now. You know, I've got those major things. This is my life. And you're struggling with contentment in what you already have. I don't know, all of us struggle with contentment for different reasons at different seasons, but none of us enjoy it. Right? Probably none of us feel like we're getting everything we wish we were out of our lives. And none of us like the way that feels. Do you enjoy feeling restless? Dissatisfied? Envious of what other people have? You know what it feels like to complain all the time? It's just this ickiness that you feel in your gut almost. When you realize just how much you've been complaining. Nobody wants to feel that way. What do we do about it? Proverbs, what we've been saying all along, is that Proverbs is about our lives, as they are. Proverbs pulls no punches. It shades us from no truth. Proverbs rings true across the ages because it's real. And if Proverbs is about our lives, then Proverbs ought to be about contentment issues, because that's the world that we live in. That is our struggle. And the fortunate thing for us is that Proverbs does address contentment. In one of my favorite passages in the entire book, it's one of these few places in Proverbs where a whole chunk of verses is about the same thing. You know, usually, we've gotten, we, what we've gotten used to is Proverbs having to be pulled line by line from all these different chapters just to sort of amass what Proverbs has to say about money. This morning, though, we get a beautiful passage, one of my favorites in the whole book, a collection of verses that build towards one of the scripture's most beautiful prayers of contentment. Matt uh, Givens finished his sermon on money last week by quoting from it, leading us into a time of prayer. It's that prayer where, where, where the author prays to God that he would give him neither poverty nor riches. Don't give me so much that I don't think I need you, and don't give me so little that I think you're not there for me. Give me just what I need, the bread that is needful for today. It's a beautiful contentment prayer. It gets quoted a lot. Maybe you've heard it. It's familiar. But what you might not have realized, what I didn't realize before studying this passage for this sermon, is that the verses that come before the prayer, so verses one to six of Proverbs chapter 30, set up the prayer and explain to us what's gotta be true in our hearts before we can pray with the author of this prayer and mean it. Here's the way I want us to look at this today. I think that if we look at all... Of the first nine verses of Proverbs chapter 30, what we see, what we can isolate are four steps to contentment. Four steps to contentment. We're all going to need these steps in different ways. Some of you are at different places in this journey. Some of us step, take one step forward, two steps back. But there are four steps that this passage points us to that will always, that should always be on our radar. If we want to grow in contentment with what God has given to us. I want to read the passage and then we'll dive straight into the first of our steps. I'm going to read Proverbs 30 from verses 1 to 9. And I'm going to ask you, in honor of God's word, would you please stand with me as I read? This is the word of the Lord. The words of Agur, son of Jaca, the oracle. The man declares... I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What's his name? What is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words. Lest he rebuke you. And you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you. And say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Four steps of contentment I want us to walk through this morning. First one is this. Got to accept That you don't deserve better. You've got to accept. You want to be content. You've got to accept that you don't deserve better. This is some tough medicine we've got to take. Okay? The first three verses here. We've got to be careful with it. We don't want to overplay what these first three verses say. But we want to let them speak to us as they are. They're incredible verses. So we don't know anything about this guy. This Agur son of Jocka, like most of Proverbs, the authors, the editors, the people who collected all the different sayings and compiled them into this one book are pretty much a mystery to us. We don't know. We know that there's lots of different authors in play. We know that somebody arranged them and put them in this order on purpose. And that's what's really interesting to me about Proverbs chapter 30. Because somebody made a decision to take this passage we just read and plop it in at the very end just one chapter shy of the end of this collection on the wise life. Right at the end of a long collection on what it looks like to live wisely is one of the scripture's most honest prayers of confession from a guy who knows he's a fool. You can almost imagine the speaker here as one one of the men in training who are using Proverbs to try to learn about wise life they're getting ready to lead others in wisdom maybe some sort of king in waiting they want to honor god with their lives trying to trying their best to follow these principles but this guy's worn out i'm weary oh god he just throws up his hands you know i've seen what you've said about money i'm weary i've seen what you've said about sex i'm i'm worn out i've seen what you've said about the family i can't do it he's throwing up his hands in despair He knows from his trying and his failing that he's not as wise as he wants to be. Not as wise as he should be. He describes himself as one who's not worthy to be a man. More of a brute animal just living on instinct with whatever feels right. Than an ordered and disciplined life lived in light of God and the fear of him. He may as well have learned nothing he says. Here at the end of a collection defining the wisdom of Israel. The speaker in the collection says, I have not learned wisdom. It's remarkable, isn't it? And if wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. If the knowledge of the Holy One, Proverbs chapter 1. Is the key to living wisely. Then let his words land to you. Land on you at the end of verse 3. I have no knowledge of the Holy One. He's a man who knows enough to recognize that there is nothing he has that he hasn't received as a gift. That there is no hope he has that doesn't rest on grace and mercy. That there is no praise or glory that he has earned. And that, therefore, he is a guy who has tapped into one of the most important sources of contentment any of us can ever tap into. Before we can rest content in what we have, we've got to recognize we don't deserve better. One of the things that breeds discontent in us is a sense that, that we are not getting our due. That there's something unjust about what's fallen to us. Maybe maybe we look at what's fallen to others and we think they don't have to deal with the pain that I deal with in my relationships. They aren't struggling with money the same way that I am. Why can't I have their life instead of mine? And and what wells up in us is a sense of injustice. It's not fair. I deserve more. Discontent feeds on pride. But humility breeds gratitude. Gratitude. Humility breeds an awareness that what you have is not something you have earned, not something you deserve. Realizing what you're not is the key to recognizing what you have. Think about it. Think about what the Bible says about all of us. We aren't responsible for being here. Did you give birth to yourself? Did you will yourself into existence? Into a body that works well, that functions relatively in a healthy way? Did you nurture yourself when you were young? Provide food and shelter and clothing? Have you given yourself every opportunity that you've depended on to get where you are right now in life? Isn't it true that we've all depended on the influence of others? Their knowledge, their interest in us, their connections. And what the Bible tells us is that all that we've received from other people, ultimately we've received from God. There is no good thing in our lives that isn't a gift from Him. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Now, now, in light of that, if everything in my life that's worth having is something He gave to me, now consider the implications of my apathy, of my cold-heartedness towards Him, of the scant attention I pay to His Word, of the neglect of Him in the decisions that I make about my life. Now consider the implications of how quick I am to claim credit for the good things in my life. How quick I am to shift blame to somebody else for the mistakes I've made in my life. Now consider the lack of gratitude I have for what's good. And you know it for what it is. It's an offense. To the God who has given me everything that I have. it's a decision to treat him as if he hasn't been for me. And in that decision, were I in his position, I would, I would see all that I need to see to check out, to move on, to draw some protective boundaries between me and that leech who keeps, who keeps taking, taking, taking and never recognizing what I've given. But what has God done? God has not cut himself off from us. But he has come to us. He has entered into our world and become like us. He has offered us a promise of a kingdom in which there is no, no sorrow. No sorrow in which every tear will be wiped away. He has given us those promises now as an inheritance that we can live with, that we can live in light of. And, and along the way, he continues to give us food for our bellies, roofs over our heads, friends to love us and be with us. There's plenty that he doesn't give us. He knows in his own good purposes why he has given, as he's given to, to the varieties of us. But what he has given is tremendous. It is undeserved. And until we recognize that we don't deserve better, we'll never be able to take it for what it is and be glad. Humility starts, starts us towards the path to contentment. Recognizing that God has filled our lives, not maybe with everything we might want, but with good things we couldn't have orchestrated on our own and do not deserve. I think that's what the first three verses point us to. Throwing up our hands and recognizing what we're not there's another step it takes us even further not just admitting that we don't deserve better we've got to embrace that we don't know better and here's another thing about our discontent usually maybe even maybe even worth saying in every case what we're saying when we look at our lives and say they should be different than what they are what we're saying is that if i were pulling the strings if i were in charge I wouldn't have done it this way. What we're saying is, I know better what's best for me than God does. And the words of verse 4 won't let us go there. Verse 4 uses some images that are real common in the scriptures for the bigness of God. For, for, for God as the one who rules over all things, who, as the one who dwarfs us in all of our pretense. Questions that make their point clearly. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? You? You've been up there and come down? Yeah, right. Who has gathered the wind in his fist? You? Really? Who has wrapped up the waters as in a garment? You? Uh, no. Not you. Who has established the ends of the earth? Who holds the globe where it is? Not you. It's a rhetorical device, and it's sarcastic, right? Right? Can you even give me the name of the person who's done that? Surely you know, the author says. In this context, in this context, the point is not just the majesty of creation, but the limitation of all human beings. And the images get us there, don't they? In a couple of weeks, my family will be at, at um, a, a place that we go every year, near where we grew up, down on the Gulf Coast. We're going to be crammed onto with, with hundreds of thousands of other people like sardines onto a 200 mile stretch of white powdery sand staring at water. Why do we do that? What draws us there by, in droves? Isn't it that there's something amazing about the bigness of it? About a sky that just stretches out with nothing to hide us from its bigness. No trees, no buildings to get in the way. You just look and it just goes on. Who has ascended into heaven and come down? You. Don't we go to just stare at the massive amount of water, its depth and its breadth, the way it stretches, the way it crashes in onto the beach on us. It's got this power that nothing can stand against. Who has gathered the waters together in a garment? You. You wrap them up in a, in, a, in a satchel and toss it over your shoulder? Yeah, right. Haven't you been on the beach and driven from it by the wind? Just on a normal beach day, the wind that whips the water, it takes this incre- thing of incredible power and tosses it like a rag doll. That's how powerful the wind is. You gather the wind in your fists? I don't think so. One of the things that Proverbs has been trying to point us to over and over, we've seen it so many times is that we just aren't God right? wisdom begins in recognizing there is a God we must fear him we are not him and where this interacts with contentment is in the sense that we know best what we need for our lives friends you can't carry that kind of weight you don't know what's best for your life you can't see all that you would need to see you can't, any more than you can gather the wind in your fists or throw the water into your beach bag. You can't do it. There's a thought experiment that I heard from another pastor. I'm not sure where it comes from originally, but it really helps me. On this question of, of, of sort of self-awareness, recognizing just how limited we are, what we can't do or see. He said, uh, he said, so you think you know what you really need out of your life. Why don't you think back to when you were 13 years old? What would you want then? What kind of family structure did you imagine for yourself? What kind of career? What if God had come to you as a 13-year-old and said, I'll give you whatever life you want. Just ask me. It'll be yours. Would you be happy right now with the life you would have chosen for yourself then? Fast forward to when you were 18, about to enter college. You're starting to be more self-aware as an adult. Your interests are refined, your sense of yourself has started to develop. Maybe you know better at 18 than you did at 13. Imagine God comes to you as an 18-year-old. I'll give you whatever you want. Name your terms and that life is yours. Think about what you would have said then, friends. Would you have been happy now with the choices you would have made then? But now you've got it figured out, right? (laughs) Now you've got it figured out. Now if God came to you and, and asked you, what life would you like to have? Now you can make that choice and make no mistakes about it, right? No, clearly not. None of us know. We're not big enough to micromanage our lives. That's what it comes down to. And contentment comes when we recognize that. When we recognize that what we don't have and might want that God has not given to us has not been given to us for reasons that he understands, for reasons that that he knows are, are good for us. And we're not in a position to nitpick about it because we don't see what he sees. We've got to embrace that, not push back against it, embrace it. It is good that I am not big enough to make the decisions that affect the future of my life. How could we make a decision? How how could we get past just being frozen by fear if we thought every decision we made was going to set in stone who and what we could be, that nothing we could do would change it? God has protected us from that fear, from what we would do to ourselves if we could write our own script. Contentment comes when we embrace that. Here's step number three. We started with self-awareness. That's essential for contentment. We've got to recognize we don't deserve better. We've got to recognize we don't know better what our lives should be than he does. And then from verses five and six, I think we've got to emphasize promises, God's promises to us, more than we emphasize possibilities. Emphasize what he's promised to do for us more than we, more than our heart belongs to what's possible for our lives that we wish we could see. Right? So all of us have possible futures in mind that we would love to see become real. Every single one of us. And it is so hard not to give our hearts to those possibilities. Not to daydream about them. To imagine how much we would enjoy having them. But as long as they are possibilities and not promises, we don't know that those things will be real for us. And our discontentment feeds on a sense that a fulfilled and meaningful life will be one in which that possible thing becomes real. Our discontentment will be pushed back. Our contentment will become more, more reality in our lives when we lock in on and give our hearts to what God has promised to do, not what is possible that he will do. Here's where I'm getting that. verses five and six. The author says every word of God proves true. The one who can put the waters in a garment, grab the wind with his fist, that God, his words never lie. And when he says it, he can do it. He has that power. You don't, but he does. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. You come to him for what he promises he will give you, you will never be disappointed. He will protect you in all of your limitations. In all of your failures to be who you should be. He is a refuge to the guy who admits what our author admitted in verses one to three. To the guy who admits what our author admitted in verse four. The guy who hasn't been what he should be and who can't control his own life. To that person, God in his word is a refuge. So don't try to add to his words, verse six. Don't take your possible future that you've imagined and by default, in practice, tag it on to what God has promised and hold him accountable for delivering your possibilities. You add to your word to His words, and He'll rebuke you. What does a life shaped by God's promises look like? I think a good place to start is thinking about what he's actually promised. What had he promised when this was written? When this was put into a collection that all Israelites were supposed to be hearing from and going back to over and over. What word of God that proves true was this guy thinking about? I can't imagine that he wasn't thinking about the promise to Abraham, for example. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the very first book of the Bible, where the foundations for God's relationship to his people, Israel, are, are being laid, there's this section... Where one particular person is identified by God. Not because he deserved it. But because God is full of grace. This person is approached by God directly. And he's given promises. Promises of a family. Of a people. That would stretch across the globe. That would be a blessing to all all the nations of the earth. A people who would outnumber the sand on the seashore. And the stars in the heavens. He came to this guy and he promised him this people. And said I will be your God. You'll be my people, which is to say, you won't have to worry about anything. I will give you everything that you need. You can trust me. All through the Bible, from that moment on, God is building that people, despite their failure to believe in him, to be faithful to him, to trust in him when things got hard. He was still doing it, still building that people. As the Bible unfolds, so do those promises to Abraham promises that God will be to them not just a king who tells them what to do but a father who provides for them who loves them who knows them and approaches them with grace and mercy every time friends it it's possible it's possible that God will give you the family that you desire that he may give you a spouse he may give you a child or more children or grandchildren those are are beautiful gifts that he gives from his grace. It's possible that he'll give them to you. And it's not wrong to hope for that. Even pray for that. But contentment will come when your heart belongs to his promise. A promise of a family in which he is your loving and providing. And all knowing and never leaving father. Father in which Christ himself is your brother who came for you, who lived for you, and died for you, and rose again for you, so that you will never, ever be alone, who has placed you into a church that is your brothers, that is your sisters, so that you will never have to be on your own. That's a promise. It's true now. He's a refuge for all who hope in him. His words prove true. Those words. I think of his promise to Jeremiah promise of the new covenant the promise of what he would do for a people that he was building who just couldn't seem to get over the hump to actually love him a people for whom the things he told them to do were always outside always external always laws that they just couldn't fulfill he came to that people in jeremiah 31 and said i'm going to give you new hearts what i'm going to do is write my laws on your heart so that you'll love what i tell you to do so that you'll see how beautiful it is to walk in holiness to walk for me and live with me I'm going to give you that, and you know what? I'm not going to remember your sins anymore. I'm going to forget about all the things that you've done wrong. Isaiah extends that promise. He explains how it's going to happen. Isaiah 53, all of us have turned away. Each of us, like sheep, we've gone our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his stripes, we are healed. His wounds bring us healing. By him, we are made worthy. And every word of God proves true. So friends, it's possible that you might get that job that you really want. And it's possible that you might be really good at it. You might even make a good living. You might be comfortable financially. You might make a name for yourself. Be the guy that people want to come to for advice. That they aspire to be. That might happen. If it happens, I pray that God will help you to use that influence well. That he will remind you that he gave you that good gift. That's possible. But contentment will come when your hearts belong to his promise that you don't need that sort of approval. When you're justified by the God who made you because of the work of his son and your brother. When you realize he's promised to make worthy all those who trust in him so that you can stop trying to prove yourself and just trust in His promise. Every word of God proves true and He is a refuge to those who seek Him. God has promised to us also in Isaiah, one of my favorite promises, Isaiah 25, He's promised that He would spread a great feast for all peoples. They'll all come and they will party. They will have everything they will want. They will eat and drink to their fill. They will enjoy themselves and never know sorrow because on that mountain, Isaiah 25 says, I am going to swallow death once and for all. I'm going to tear away the veil that is cast over all the peoples and I will wipe away every tear. That's the promise of Isaiah 25. So friends, it's possible that you could live a really long life. That you could avoid death cancer or other major illness that maybe even your loved ones will all live long lives and avoid major illnesses that's possible but what's promised is that jesus is the resurrection and the life that though you might die that though you will die that though it might happen to you tomorrow yet in him you will All God's promises are yes to us in Jesus. Every one of them. Or as Proverbs 35 puts it, every word of God proves true. So friends, to to latch on to contentment in your life, what you're going to have to do is to fight against what's natural for us, to fight against judging God's promises and his ability to deliver on his promises against our possibilities, the things we want for ourselves. What's natural for us is to take the lives that we want, that we've envisioned, and to judge whether God can save us from sin and death by whether he gives us these things we want from him. But what Proverbs 30 is telling us is we've got to flip that script. And we've got to start with his promises to us. We've got to latch on to what he has said he will do. We've got to view him in light of his word, not in light of what we want from him. Even as we pray to him for the things that we want. That's where contentment comes. The fight starts there. Here's the last thing. We finally build to the great prayer of Proverbs 37 to 9. The famous prayer of contentment. Our last strategy for seeking contentment ourselves. Here's what it says. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. What's going on in this prayer? This is a prayer of a guy who knows himself and fears the Lord. It's the prayer of somebody who gets what he's not. He gets that he's not entitled. He gets that he doesn't know what's best. So, what he prays in his prayer to God makes no demands. All that he asks for is God to decide what he needs. And God to give him a willingness to trust in what God gives. In asking for neither poverty nor riches, I think in essence what he's asking for is God. Give me enough so that I recognize you have satisfied me. You are there for me. I can trust you. Help me to see that so that I don't think I'll be better off on my own. And start stealing, start scrambling to provide myself with the life that I want. Give me enough to know you know best and I can trust you with my life. But don't give me so much that I'll forget how I got here. That I'll start to rest in these gifts rather than seeking after the giver. That I'll trick myself into thinking I'm the reason I have what I have. What he's asking for is God. Give me enough that I know I have you and need you. I want you. There's some outlandish statements about prayer in the Bible. Statements like, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Statements like, you don't have because you don't ask. Ask, and it'll be given. This prayer here can sound like a contradiction to those almost. It's so modest. But that's because we miss what those big outlandish statements are actually saying. They're saying, ask what you wish. This guy's showing us what we should wish. This guy's asking for what he wants. He's asking for whatever he wishes. What he wishes for is God. What he knows is that anything else God gives him is not going to outlive his death. He can have wealth that's unmatched anywhere else in the world. He can have a family that's exactly the one that he wanted, and it can have a full life without sickness or death. But ultimately, he is going to die, and all that's going to be gone. And so whether he has much or little, he has nothing that isn't God. That's what he realizes. And that's why he asks for what he wants. God. One of the Christian thinkers that's helped me to understand this and love this idea more than any other is is, uh, Augustine, who wrote over 1,500 years ago, but with a remarkable power to put things in ways that stay clear and relevant to us. And this week, I read a letter on prayer that Augustine wrote to a wealthy noblewoman that he had befriended. This woman had a lot going for her. She, was, she had lots of money. She had a healthy family. He talks about that in the letter. Her, she, had, she had all these kids and grandkids and everything was going great. Uh, they hadn't been taken away by war or disease. She lived a privileged life in this time in the world when child mortality was so high. She writes to Augustine asking him to tell her how to pray. What should I be praying for? What's a thing that honors God if I ask for it? And Augustine starts not by what she should pray for, but by who she should be if she wants to pray well. And what he tells her is that you've got to pray as one who is desolate. You've got to pray as one who knows she has nothing. You basically have everything most people want. But you've got to pray like you have nothing. And not because you're not grateful for what you have, but because you know what you have won't last. You might not have it tomorrow, much less 10 years, 50 years, 100 years from now. You might not have it tomorrow. So you really have nothing. And you need to pray as one who has nothing. And then once you pray as one who has nothing, Augustine says, then what you ought to pray for is what everybody wants. Pray for a happy life. That's what you should pray for. But what you should know is that a happy life comes not when you have the things you already have. Things that death is just going to steal away from you. That a happy life comes when you're locked onto something that won't end. Something that nothing can take away. That nothing can steal. You'll be happy when you have God When you see yourself, as Augustine put it, as one bereaved, even though all of your family still lives, as one bereaved and desolate, even though you have more money than most people anywhere in the world, when you see yourself as one bereaved and desolate, as long as you're a pilgrim that's absent from his Lord. What we've got to do if we want to get content is we have got to pray toward a life of satisfaction in God. Where we can't forget our need for him and we can't miss that he's there for us. And there is no area of life that we shouldn't pray to God about in this way. There's no area of life that we shouldn't be honest about what we want to see. But there's no area of life in which we can't see our requests go unanswered and still love him so long as he gives us himself. Because ultimately there is no thing in this life that we might ask him for that would ever satisfy if it didn't come with him. Father, we, we are so tempted to give our hearts to things that won't last. We know that because we keep doing it over and over and over again and prayers like this one seem Like a long shot for any of us to pray with any kind of authenticity. So we ask you by the spirit that you've promised to us. To shape our hearts so that when we ask you for yourself, we ask for what we want. That when we enjoy the good things of this life, we enjoy them because they come from you and remind us of you. That we see what we do have more than what we don't because we know we don't deserve anything. That you, that you have given us everything that we have and none of it have we been fully grateful for. Lives where we recognize that we don't have the bandwidth to understand what's best for ourselves. And lives where we trust with absolute confidence that every word you've spoken to us will be true. Be our shield, we pray, and guide our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.